0: It's a long way. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War premium episode number 34. This is our third and final episode on the campaigns in German East Africa during the war. We will cover the events of 1917 and 1918, during which the campaign in East Africa would totally and completely change. During this time, Smuts would leave the theater, leaving a completely exhausted British army in his wake. This would give the Germans a bit of time to recover, but by this point, they were heavily outnumbered and heavily outsupplied. This would force the Tav Warbeck fully into guerrilla warfare, which would last for the rest of the war. During this time, the German forces would completely abandon even the concept of defending the colony, and would instead push into Portuguese East Africa. This would allow them to raid into more profitable areas that had been mostly untouched by the war up to this point. During one month of this raiding in 1918, the Germans would raid 30 trains and would destroy 10 rail bridges. This havoc, while problematic, was also not as impactful or dramatic as previous fighting, but it was all that the Germans could do at this point in the war. As the end of 1916 approached, Smuts was in a bind. His army was exhausted, and his plans to trap the Germans had failed at every turn. The British had captured huge swaths of what had been German territory, but this was still not the great and decisive victory that Smuts had hoped for. With it clear that his army could not sustain a large campaign in early 1917, something magical happened, at least in terms of Smuts's reputation. In early 1917, Lloyd George wanted to create an imperial war conference in London. This would involve representatives from all of the empire's colonies and commonwealths. Smuts was chosen to be the representative from South Africa. When he would leave East Africa, he left his army in command of most of the major railways, ports, and waterways of the colonies. But he also left an army that was completely, totally exhausted, had serious supply problems, and had thousands of men in the hospital. These would all be problems that the next commander would have to deal with. Smuts was basically jumping out of the theater just in time. Back in London, his huge advances and territorial acquisitions made him a hero, and it was up to the next guy to deal with the aftermath. As the territory controlled by the Germans was forced to contract, the areas still available to Latov Vorbeck found themselves more and more heavily taxed to keep the German army in the field. These areas were robbed of all foodstuffs, and their population was taken as carriers for the German army. It was very rare that any payment or compensation was given for either of these actions. Many British officers would later report that this was the primary reason that Todd Vorbeck was able to keep his troops in the field throughout the last two years of the war. There was a general and complete disregard for the native populations. As one British officer would put it, quote, a total disregard for the barest needs of the native population. The wholesale requisitioning that was happening would cause famine in East Africa during the last months of 1917, resulting in the deaths of up to 300,000 Africans, which was about 5% of the population. Those that were forced to be carriers were even more unlucky than those that were left behind. As one British officer would say, quote, Can you wonder how the carriers suffered, and suffered terribly? Of course they did. These poor, spiritless, ragged creatures had to hump their heavy packs and follow some of the most active and hardy troops that ever took to the field, over fearfully difficult country, through one of the most prolonged and rapid wars of movement ever known. End quote. All of these supplies allowed the Germans to stay in almost constant motion, never really getting within reach of their British pursuers. With Smuts now back in London talking about how awesome he was, it was once again time to find a replacement for the British commander in East Africa. They returned to Major General Hoskins. Hoskins was not very experienced in fighting in Africa. He was deeply racist, but he was still chosen. The condition of the army when he arrived was less than he hoped for, When Smuts left, a large number of South African troops went with him. When this was combined with the number of sick and wounded troops, Hoskins found himself in a serious manpower crunch. While the number of British forces in the colony were now over 40,000, There were really only about 24,000 combat troops, and only about half of those were truly combat effective by the time that Hoskins arrived. It would take Hoskins weeks to convince those in London that the situation was not in the favor of the British at this point in time. In this effort, he was not at all assisted by Smuts, who made it clear that Hoskins was dawdling, taking up way too much time. Obviously, the situation was not nearly as bad as he said. Because of Smuts's influence back in London, this view would carry the day, and in May, Hoskins would be replaced and sent to Mesopotamia. He would be, placed, be replaced by General Van Deventer, who had commanded South African mounted troops for Smuts. Van Deventer would be in command for the rest of the war. Even if the British troops had been in pristine condition in early 1917, it would have been very difficult to launch many operations during the first four months of the year. The rains would come on January 22nd, and they would be some of the worst in recorded history. For four months, no large actions would occur, and just the act of supplying the forces was almost impossible. By late January, 120 miles of road that was critical to the British supply movements was simply washed away, and the entire area became a lake. With the road gone, the only recourse was to rely on carrier convoys, which, when having to feed and supply 3,000 troops, was a pretty big task. No fresh meat would reach the forward troops during this time, and rations were cut to almost nothing. While barely keeping the troops fed, van de Vinter also prepared to advance. But at the very least, he could depend on the Germans being in a situation that was just as bad as his own. The Germans were down to half rations during this period, and on both sides, the death rates among carriers ballooned up to one in five, a staggering death toll when you consider that tens of thousands of carriers were participating at this point on either side. While the rain was a problem, nothing could completely stop the fighting, and as soon as he could, Van de Venter would launch an attack on Kilwa which was the main German ammunition dump in this part of the country. At this point, Van de Vinter did not really care if the Germans stayed to fight, or even if he managed to trap them. All he knew was that if he hit the depot fast enough, the Germans could not possibly take everything with them, and what they lost, they would be unable to replace. On July 19th, the British launched their attack, and the Germans did decide to resist. And while they held out for a brief period, Van de Venter also sent troops on a flanking mission, which forced the Germans to, once again, retreat. The German troops would retreat to Mahingo, which they were then forced to abandon in late September. It was at this point, when about a thousand troops surrendered at Mahingo, that the German situation really began to fall apart. This would begin a trend where small groups of German troops would be confronted and they would surrender to the British attackers. This would include 1,500 troops in mid-October, 1,400 later that month who were out scavenging for supplies, and in November, another 1,600. In each of these cases, the lost troops would continue to erode the ability of Vorbeck and the Germans to actually confront the British. But for most of 1917, Vorbeck would not give up hope that a successful confrontation was possible. During 1917, Latav Vorbeck was still hoping that one big engagement could still happen, and he could defeat the British troops in that engagement. If everything went right, he might be able to reach almost parity with a body of British troops, and then hit a blow that would send the British reeling. By late 1917, he hoped that this would allow him to maintain his troops in the Lukulidi Valley, the the region of South Africa, which was still pretty lucrative in terms of food. If this could be accomplished in 1917, it might allow the Germans to hold onto this area into 1918. As the situation continued to deteriorate though, Vorbeck was forced to try and find this fight on worse and worse terms. In October he was presented with a possible opportunity. The British were advancing troops from two directions, one column from the north and another from the west. Their goal was to separate the 1,200 men that Vorbeck had with him from the 1,000 men under the command of German General Wall. Vorbeck hoped that he could hit one of these British columns before they could fully isolate his units. To do this, Vorbeck would march his troops 40 miles to hit the British after they attacked Wall. If everything went according to plan, the British would panic and flee. Everything actually did go according to plan. The British attacked Wall, Vorbeck arrived at the perfect time, but then the British did not panic, and instead they held their ground. Vorbeck would try to outflank the British, but would run into more British troops who were trying to do the same thing to him. Vorbeck would be forced back from his flanking attack, and the fighting would turn into a stalemate. Fighting would continue for days, and it would become a simple attrition battle, the exact type that the Germans couldn't fight. Eventually, the British would pull back, resulting in a tactical victory for Vorbeck, but in every other sense, this was a disaster. Sure, Vorbeck could claim that the British had lost 40% of their forces, but the 25% that the Germans lost were totally irreplaceable. More than that, they had used most of their ammunition, which was just as hard to come by as more men. While the British were forced back for a few weeks, they would just return, and in greater numbers. It was at this point that Vorbeck was forced to make a decision. While he successfully fought off the British advances and pushed them back for the moment, they would be coming back and he would once again be forced to run. Most of his scattered units were surrendering to the British, with 98 German and 425 Askari troops, and a good portion of Vorbeck's remaining artillery pieces surrendering in Chiwata in late November. He was now down to just three hundred and twenty European and twenty five hundred Askari troops under his direct command, and a few hundred more scattered throughout the colony. He was also critically low on quinine, which meant that soon his European troops would begin to have serious problems with malaria. On November 17th, all of these facts forced him to make a decision. He would gather together as many troops as possible, and they would all undergo a medical exam. The fittest 2,000 men would go with him on a raiding trip into Portuguese East Africa. This meant that several hundred European and up to 2,000 Askari would be left to be taken prisoner by the British. I doubt all of them were deeply saddened by this prospect, but you know how it goes. By making this decision, Latav Vorbeck was totally giving up on the idea of a traditional war, or even holding onto territory within the German colony, he and his army were going into full guerrilla mode. Back in Germany, Vorbeck was promoted to Major General. Not that it mattered that much, I guess he got paid more now, but whatever. He arranged his troops into ten companies, with five in the vanguard, two in the rear, and three in the center. These were all spread out over a pretty good distance, and everyone knew that they had set themselves up to be constantly pursued by the British. They also only had about 3,000 carriers with them, which greatly limited the number of supplies that they could carry with them. This made the rapid raiding and taking of supplies a necessity, a constant necessity. They would make some quick initial successes, with Vorbeck and Wall seizing 18 tons of food in just three weeks. This kept the Germans on their feet for a while, but since they could not stay in one place for long or take much food with them, they would have to have these types of successes again and again. Back in London, Lloyd George continued to push for the British troops to pursue the Germans, even into Portuguese territory. Van Winter had little hope of catching Vorbeck or forcing him into a position where he would surrender. The most that he could hope for was to keep whittling away at the German numbers, and hopefully they would run into a string of bad luck. One of the problems that Van de Vinter had was that once the Germans made it into Portuguese territory, the Portuguese were not exactly thrilled to have British troops marching through their colony. They were concerned that if the British were allowed to move into the colony and they were shown to be militarily weak, it would affect the ability of the Portuguese to hold on to their colonies or even expand them when the war was over. It would take three weeks for them to finally grant Van Deventer permission to enter, and by this point Vorbeck had a good solid lead on the British pursuers, and he would be raiding for a while. While Vorbeck was making the decision to move to a strict raiding strategy, back in Berlin there were plans being made to try and supply him directly. This came in the form of a plan created by Max Zupitza, and it would involve airlifting supplies with a zeppelin. This plan was of course top secret, and it was codenamed the China Affair. It would involve taking the airship L-59, lengthening it by 225 meters, which would make it the largest airship uh, ever built, then there would be changes to make the airship as useful as possible once it arrived in Africa, because this was always going to be a one-way trip. Every piece of the ship had a purpose assigned to it when it arrived. For example, the catwalks were covered with leather that could be used to make boots. Supplies were included to turn the canvas into tents and clothing. The list went on and on, everything on the ship had some use. The L-59 was given enough fuel to reach its goal with 15 tons of cargo, including 30 machine guns and 400,000 rounds of ammunition. The first attempt to make the trip began on November 13th, with the 22 man crew ready for the 3600 mile journey. However, bad weather would force the ship to turn back. A week later they tried again, and this time the airship made it all the way to Egypt. Everything seemed to be going great. But then a wireless transmission was received from Berlin. It read: "Break off operation. Return. Enemy has seized greater part of makondi Highlands. Already hold Kitagari. Portuguese are attacking remainder of protectorate forces in the south." End quote. Unfortunately, for all of those that had worked so hard to get this airship ready for the trip, the Germans had simply lost all the territory in which the airship could have landed, and therefore the entire operation was scrapped. Two days later, having traveled 4,180 miles, the airship arrived back in Europe, a long way to fly for no real purpose, and I think the longest airship uh, trip at this point in history. Vorbeck would not learn of the attempt to supply him until later, and oddly enough, only from the British. The war in Africa entered into 1918, with the Germans continuing their raiding and the British in pursuit. During this time, the Germans were unable to capture enough quinine to keep their European troops healthy, and this meant that throughout the year, the number of Europeans under Vorbeck's command continued to dwindle. Those that fell behind were left behind. In early October, the German troops would get their first information about the situation in Europe, or at least the first in many months, when their wireless set, which at this point could only receive but not transmit, actually got a signal from Europe. What they heard is that the Germans were still holding in the Hindenburg Line. They had missed out on most of the drama of 1918 up to this point, but they had known of the Hindenburg Line from 1917, and they were encouraged that the Germans still held that line of fortifications which was in France and Belgium, and not in Germany. Over the next month, other snippets of news would slowly trickle in, and what they gathered from these sources, like captured from British telegrams, painted a far less optimistic picture for the German war effort. Schnee, who was still with Vorbeck and the German forces, would say that quote very unfavorable news relating to the Western Front, the Bulgarian armistice, and the capture of Damascus would be found in British communications. It was clear to the troops in Africa that the situation in Europe was already not exactly good and it was only getting worse. They would hear about the armistice right after managing to capture a huge amount of supplies in Kassama, an effort that would prove to be pointless. It would not be until November 25th, 14 days after the armistice on the Western Front, that Vorbeck would surrender. It had been a year since he had begun his raids into Portuguese territory. He would present his surrender to Brigadier General Edwards. Edwards allowed Vorbeck to keep his sword and for the German officers to keep their sidearms. He would have only 155 Europeans and 1,168 Ascari with him at the time of surrender. Finally, after four years, the war was truly over. As with all aspects of the war, the East African Theater had its own tally of hardships inflicted on the combatants and those around them. Throughout the course of the war, the Allies would commit a total of 200,000 troops to the campaign, although not all at once, and of these, 5,000 would die. A true tragedy would be the carriers that the British forces employed. There would be about a million carriers in British service at some point during the war, and 95,000 of those would die. With this level of attrition when it became known in London, it was believed that the true cost of the campaign should be suppressed if at all possible. Evaluations of the campaign varied on the British side. They had managed to push the Germans out of their own colony, but had not managed to achieve the quick victory that they had hoped for, and which had happened in so many other colonies around the globe. One British colonial administrator, Charles Dundas, would later say that the British might have even helped Vorbeck to become the kind of hero that he would become after the war, saying, quote, Had we not invaded German East Africa, it's quite possible that von Lettbau Vorbeck would have been compelled to surrender in order to save his own people, particularly the German women and children, from extreme privation. Instead, we relieved him of that burden and left him unencumbered to pursue his tactics of attrition. One wonders at times whether it not it would have been more profitable to content ourselves with holding our own borders, leaving the Germans to stew in their own juice. In a sense, it all seemed so futile. Vorbeck would consider the campaign a success, believing that he had diverted 300,000 British troops away from the European theater. This number is a bit high, 200,000 was a better estimate, and many of the troops that were sent to Africa probably wouldn't have made it to Europe anyway. The Germans had also lost several thousand men, but most of their combat troops had been captured. Once again, the true tragedy on the side of the Germans was the native Africans. The Germans did not even keep records of the number of carriers conscripted by their forces. They were considered totally expendable to them, and they did not record casualty rates either. The official history of the campaign would read, quote, "...of the loss of levies, carriers, and boys, we could not make an overall count due to the absence of detailed sickness records." Given the number of carriers employed and the hardships experienced by them, it is extremely doubtful that the number is less than the 95,000 that the British lost, and it's very likely that that number is far higher. That does not even include the number affected by the policies of Latov Vorbeck while he was vacuuming up supplies for his men. All that we can really do is speculate, but the best estimates from historians put the number of Africans that would die as a direct result of these German actions between 300,000 and 350,000. This leads me to conclude that the number of Africans killed by the German policies or employment during the war could have been as high as 500,000. Just to make the situation worse for the Africans, right after the war and the famine that it created, the survivors were hit by the worldwide flu epidemic. By the time that that was over, it would cause 2 million people to die in sub-Saharan Africa. All those numbers are incredibly fuzzy due to the absence of good record keeping. The legacy of Latav Vorbeck and his troops in German East Africa would be one of the great heroic stories of post-war Germany. German and later Nazi historians would claim that just a thousand carriers had died supporting the German troops during the war. Latov Vorbeck would be treated like a classical heroic soldier who had been a benevolent commander and leader of his African troops. They insisted that the population of German East Africa heavily supported their war, and their loyalty had lasted until the very end. It would be only after decolonization in the aftermath of World War II that the true story, as so often is the case in colonial Africa, would be told. By that point, the post-World War I histories had become sort of canon, and they had done much to boost Latav Vorbeck's prestige, an image that's hard to break even today. But the matter of the fact is that, like many other Europeans during the area of European colonization, Latav Vorbeck is only known because he was standing on a giant pile of death, destruction, and suffering that was hidden from view.